This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're always looking for new ideas and topics from our listeners, so please reach out, share your ideas. You can email us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com or connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and you can find links to all that in the show notes. Now, on to this week's episode. We finally started to let go of the excuses or allowances that we've given ourselves. Oh, the medical group won't be profitable. Of course, we will have to subsidize it. The expectations are starting to change. And we're looking to those groups and the leaders of those groups to help us get to that next level. And so it's getting a fresh look. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today's topic is one that's been the subject of a lot of speculation in the last year. As we saw the impacts of COVID on physician office visits and all that associated revenue for the groups, it became clear that many people expected there'd be this kind of resulting wave of acquisition by health systems because that would be one of the few options. There was some help from the federal government that maybe dampened or prevented that wave. But at the same time, there are other forces that continued during last year full speed ahead which are reshaping the relationship between physicians and health systems and providing alternative future paths for physician groups. I want to unpack those trends. I have two SG2 experts joining me, Jennifer O'Connor, who wrote a terrific briefing about physician enterprise strategy, and Michael Luckis, who leads much of SG2's physician alignment work. Thank you both for joining. Awesome. Thanks, Trevor. Jennifer, the briefing you wrote is called Rethinking the Physician Enterprise. Give us the rundown here. Why are health systems rethinking their physician enterprise? We've focused on physicians for two decades, but why are we specifically talking about it now? The idea that there would be physician practices for sale coming out of COVID was widely discussed. We fully expected those practices, which run on such tight margins, would have a really tough time surviving. That's going to put some opportunity out there, certainly on the primary care side, where those practices tend to be smaller and size and margin and specialty, too. As we look back now, there seems to have been enough government money and other support funding over the last 18 months that we didn't see this wide open sale of physician practices. Not to say that it didn't happen, but not on the scale that I think we anticipated. You might be looking at that and saying, whew, let's breathe a sigh of relief. We're still talking about physician strategy because some other things that you might have thought went on hold during the pandemic really didn't. And that's the idea that there are outside forces, non-providers who are very interested in working with and owning and acquiring physician practices. And that interest has really skyrocketed over the last couple of years. That could be payers you see in your market moving in and buying particularly primary care practices. It could be private equity-backed platform aggregators who are very interested in specialty practices. That's very opportunistic given the site of care shifts that we see in healthcare today, so it makes a lot of sense. Suddenly, these outside folks are interested, and while there was a pause in their acquisition activity in quarter two of 2020 at the height of the pandemic, it recovered amazingly fast. They went back to transaction levels by the end of 2020 that mirrored
mirrored previous years. So even a global pandemic has not slowed down outside interest in acquiring physician practices. And that's pretty phenomenal. That's a pressure point for health systems who, even if they don't want to purchase physician practices, they've purchased a lot of them already. They want to work with them. And that alignment could get disrupted if somebody else steps in. Jennifer, I think that's right. The physicians continue to be probably the most constrained resource in the healthcare ecosystem. And it's critical that hospitals and health systems have alignment with those physicians. We've seen an interest in the physician space because of the incredible intrinsic value of the providers in the chain of care. This continues to be an area that garners a lot of interest. Hospitals and health systems, they are trying to operate and run as efficiently as possible. And if that's always been a focus, especially during the pandemic, when they had to learn how to operate under different circumstances and were challenged with operating their facilities with many fewer patients than they had prior to that, kind of unfroze their thinking as to what's possible as it relates to more effectively using the resources at their disposal. Although the headlines around outside interest is a big impetus and it's splashy, there has also been a natural evolution of health systems making investments and alignment partnerships with physicians over the last decade or two. And really, as the industry shifted increasingly to this ambulatory outpatient world, you naturally see physicians as kind of the center of gravity. What we're also seeing right now is the realization of a decade plus of acquisition. They have sizable employed physician groups. It's not just about the physicians they're not currently working with. Part of what we're hearing now is the physician group I have already working with me, employed by me. I need that to really hum. That needs to be an engine for us. It needs to be efficient. We finally started to let go of the excuses or allowances that we've given ourselves. Oh, the medical group won't be profitable. Of course, we will have to subsidize it. The expectations are starting to change. And we're looking to those groups and the leaders of those groups to help us get to that next level. And so it's getting a fresh look. That's well said. I'm going to ask you to break it apart a little bit because the themes around what's impacting the specialty side and the primary care side are just different enough that it's worth separating them out. If I'm a health system and there's groups in my market taking PE money that I wasn't interested in employing these groups anyway to begin with, how does that impact me going forward? There's a couple of things to consider here. You may not have been interested in employing them, but given what we've seen from procedures moving outpatient, you were certainly interested in having a conversation with those specialists about how you might work together to provide services in an ASC, either one they already have or one you might build together. And if somebody else who also sees that as a real opportunity, understand that outside money from private equity, they are well-versed in what's happening in our industry. They look at these specialty practices, very fragmented in most parts of the country and most specialties. And those who are procedurally driven, they see margins. They see the opportunity to scale if they can move from fragmented to larger. If we add in procedure centers, that's more margin. And so they say, we're good at this. We're good at putting companies together and building them and fast growth plans and big investment. Let's go. 
They have targeted very specifically those exact same specialties that you want to align with because either they drive margin to your inpatient business or your campus business, in some cases, your hop D world, or they're the folks who own and direct procedures that are shifting outpatient that you would really like to keep a hold of. Think orthopedics, GI. Those are top specialties that outside money is now interested in and rolling up into these ever-growing, almost national groups. Once you're part of that group, you go on a platform, you have a common EMR, you have a steady stream of investment money. It's not hard to imagine that at some point, maybe they get involved in larger contracts and the idea of where they send care when they do need more complex care becomes a decision that you no longer influence as much as you used to. Whether it's about procedures you could get today or downstream what happens to those referral channels, both of those make specialty care really big and it's the margins that we count on. So that feels like a really unnerving change to not have strong ties and strong partnerships there. Specialty care, we're seeing a lot of activity by all these individual PE-backed companies who are rolling them up into these platforms typically along specialty lines and seeing how big they can grow them. The thing to watch there is private equity tends to have a timeline for their investment and they're going to want to flip it in three to five years. The next buyer might be a bigger private equity company. Who knows? There's a little bit of downstream. Where do they go after here? Or does the health system buy them? Wow, that's a really big multiple and that presents multiple challenges. There's a whole nother side of the game around primary care where we have a different set of companies who are also often backed by private money, either PE or they've gone IPO. And they've really built models of care to take care of patients who are in Medicare Advantage and feel like they have built a better mousetrap to do primary care in a risk environment. They're taking that model, taking the investment money and growing it as fast as they can. That's very disruptive for systems who have set their eyes on primary care as a key channel. It's just competition in the primary care space, but obviously for health systems who believe risk is a future strategic avenue for them, these people may get there first. Can you build it fast enough to compete with someone who has $100 million of IPO money? Probably not. So that really stirs up some questions about should we continue in primary care, especially if these other folks really do it better, which they say they do, or should we find some ways to work with them and think differently about primary care? Good framing of the differences. Michael, talk about practical market application. If you're working with members in a market and you learn that there's groups that have taken on PE money, maybe over the last couple of years, it's still kind of new. How's that going to change the strategic options for that health system when it comes to partnering, working with, coordinating with those groups? It's tricky. The private equity companies are largely concerned with growing scale. Their game is aggregation because saving 10% off of a much higher number is always better than saving 10% off of a lower number. Growth and aggregation is clearly their goal across multiple markets. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, depending on how you look at it, whereas money drives a lot of this and where the money is is where the disruption is most likely to occur. We're still dealing in local markets with interpersonal relationships. And there's a certain culture that each market has, and each market behaves uh, differently to some degree, whereas you don't have that economic alignment that is extraordinarily helpful in driving the stickiness that hospitals and health systems would like to have with their physicians. There are still other ways to align. And of course, the relationships provider to provider and system to provider are, are critically important. 
Another aspect to this discussion that might come in here is virtual care and, and telehealth. The goal for health systems is to still be the provider of choice from a system perspective and system of choice for the patient as a consumer, as well as for the providers. There's a way for hospitals and health systems to align with their providers by removing barriers to access and friction that might exist between them and the physicians in their market. Michael, I think your comment about relationships is really important here. Health systems need to understand that if you're in a conversation with a group who is also talking to private equity, there are a couple of things that are important to physicians, some of which private equity can satisfy. There is monetary opportunity that comes with this private equity investment. But hospitals really need to sit down and have a conversations and leverage those relationships to say, look, this private equity firm is thinking about the next three years. We're here in your community. We've been working with you for a decade and we're thinking about the next 20 years. And you know what that looks like. You all have a long-term vision for your organization. Then you just need to make it real for the physicians. How can you give them a voice in some of the decisions around how care is done either in your facilities or in ambulatory settings? Yes, there's a monetary desire, but some of it is they want control over clinical decisions. How do you do that? How do you structure your various alignment vehicles, your PSAs, your co-managements, all those things to make sure that they have the voice they want around driving clinical decisions and clinical care. There is an argument to be made that for some groups, money is not the only thing that they're looking for. And I think we need to remember that and bring that into the conversation. Coming together and having that sense of shared ownership and alignment of vision, not just economic alignment, for what could be grown together is critically important. A lot of hospitals and health systems have a good argument to make against some of these private equity firms and large aggregators trying to disrupt the market. In many respects, healthcare still is a cottage industry with a local flavor and bent to a lot of the kind of support services in local markets that support the health systems and the care of patients. There's definitely something to be said for buying local in the relationship between a physician and the local hospitals and health systems. But now is the time. If you have not gotten out and had a meaningful conversation from a leader in your organization to the leader of those independent groups in your market post-COVID, now is the time to have that conversation. And we say that because it's always a good way to reopen the door to what's possible, to some of those shared visions, not to be an alarmist. If you aren't having those conversations, we've been telling our members very clearly, know that private equity is. Even if it's a long road to figuring out how you might work together, the conversation has to start today. And it's not perhaps even just limited to healthcare. There is a sort of sensory overload right now in that for every company that is looking at direct primary care, there are five others that are trying to do the same thing. The market has yet to find its level, and a lot of folks are still trying to evaluate all the different options, and there might be some paralysis by analysis going on right now. We had kind of expected there to be maybe a groundswell of activity now. There's going to be a reckoning and some significant, I don't know if I want to say upheaval because that has a negative connotation, but there are a lot of markets that need to sort themselves out as it relates to independent physicians finding their home. This is a space that will continue to evolve over the next three to five years and beyond. That's probably the next generation of the evolution going out even further into the future. I love the wake up call that you're giving to our members and to health systems. One of the things you touched on, Jennifer, that I'm going to loop back to is the idea that this is an opportunity for health systems to radically rethink their whole strategic approach to their physician enterprise and making it really simple, their employment of physicians, particularly on the primary care side. 
Are either of you starting to hear from organizations that that's really a topic of conversation at the highest levels of the organization? You probably will tell me all the nuance in between. In some ways, it's kind of a black and white, go, no, go. Yeah, we're comfortable making that cut or no, we think we have a plan to stick to the formula that we've been using. I literally just had a call on this topic last week, Trevor, and it was a C-suite level executive saying, please don't tell anyone in my organization that I'm asking about this because the rumors will run wild. But I just want to really think big about what's possible. I don't want any constraints. What if we spun out our physician group? What if it no longer makes sense for them to be employees of the health system with everything going on right now? Am I crazy? It was literally the lead in to the call. We haven't seen anyone actually do it, go out and cut a deal and say to Village MD, hey, here's all my primary care locations. Let's joint venture on these and you take them as employees. They'll be off my books. I won't have that loss anymore. You know how to really fine tune these offices. Let's talk about how we coordinate the more complex care. And that's where we step in. The idea is there and people are tossing it around. It's a bit of the what if conversation happening at strategy visioning sessions and board retreats. We haven't seen that actually happen yet. But for some health systems, I do think it's worth considering what if we didn't own primary care? And as I'm saying that, know that I'm sort of gasping. It sounds ludicrous, right? But what if it was a good channel partnership where you still protect the downstream? You're still engaged in the complex acute care that you're so good at as a hospital anchored system, but you don't run primary care practices. Maybe there is something to be gained there for the hospital and also for the physicians. Maybe they spin out into their own entity that is jointly backed by the health system and some private money and the physicians have a voice and really lead it. It was definitely a more radical what if conversation, but the fact that we're even having the conversation is indicative of the impression that some of these new entrants in healthcare have left. I had a discussion probably six weeks ago with a group of our colleagues here at SG2 and a group of senior leaders at a health system who asked this very same question. And I know, Jennifer, it was a difference than the folks that you spoke with. They basically had asked us, what would that look like? How might that work? What are the ramifications of how our balance sheet would change if we took the physician group off of it and the concomitant subsidy? And then how would we even think about a future world and still remain tied in with those doctors where those doctors are no longer a part of our system. The pandemic has really unfrozen people's thinking of what's possible. People are asking questions that are much bolder and revolutionary than ever before. It has caused for some really fascinating discussions. Jennifer, you've been a part of, and, and I have as well, across a number of different domains. And this space in particular is getting a lot of discussion because medical group subsidies are tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the sizes of the group. That is a target and seen as an opportunity by a lot of systems. Michael, do you think for those systems, maybe they're a smaller market, this idea of outside money and spinning it out, right? People are going, really? For some of those systems who say, that just doesn't seem feasible to us, we want to keep our primary care in the fold. How are people starting to rethink some of the expectations around the group that might get us to a more profitable medical group? If you're not willing to jettison it, 
I think we've long expected a conversation around compensation and shifting the comp models for physicians, but we didn't really see a lot of movement. And I'm curious, as you're out talking to folks with all that's going on, do you feel like now we're finally willing to have some conversations about shifting the comp plan? Because that would be a game changer potentially internally if we keep the group. There's always this volume versus value tension. What's the relative weight of emphasis placed on volume versus value? And how does that translate into the compensation plan? What I've seen in the last three or four years is a increase in the level of sophistication and nuance that hospitals and health systems are using as they approach their compensation models. It's no longer the goal of C-suite leaders to get their physicians working absolutely as hard and as long as possible and filling up their schedules and working a full 10 clinical sessions a week or nine clinical sessions a week. I mean, of course, they want them to be busy and productive from an RVU perspective, but they also want them to be aligned with the goals of the organization. And the goals include quality and performance on payer contracts. We've been talking about this probably forever in the industry as far as how do we incentivize on value. And there are federal programs that support it. There are some programs with commercial payers as well. There's an increasing percentage of physician compensation and APP compensation as well. Let's not forget advanced practice providers and the role they play here. But increasingly, there's a greater percentage of the overall compensation that's available to providers being tied to value-based metrics, I think is interesting and perhaps important right now, given all the burnout that we're seeing in the field and the pending shortages, is the use of APPs to offset the burden on physicians But also, I've seen hospitals and health systems incentivizing physicians to get to a sweet spot of productivity. In other words, we don't want you getting up to the 90th percentile or the 80th or 85th percentile because we're afraid that creates an issue for us and for you quality of care goes down. There's been studies that demonstrate that. Plus, the physicians get tired, risk burning out. And if you lose a physician that's at the 90th percentile, you're in trouble because you got to replace them with two physicians that are just starting out in their careers in order to replace that productivity. We're seeing a sweet spot of productivity incentivized, and whether that's the 65th percentile or the 75th percentile or the 85th percentile, that's another interesting dynamic that I'm increasingly hearing in discussions with leaders at health systems. Well, thank you both. I think you've done an outstanding job showing the urgency here, but also showing that there's a pretty wide range of options and that systems are really thinking in a new way about what those options could be and tapping into experts like yourselves to help explore that. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.